The Spectator is hiring. We're looking for a new producer to join our broadcast team, working across our suite of podcasts, including this one, as well as our YouTube channel, Spectator TV. Please follow the link in the podcast description to apply. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Lee, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the writer Rebecca Boyle, who joins us from the States to talk about her new book, Our Moon, A Human History. Uh, Rebecca, this is a kind of huge, expansive book about the moon and its meanings and its science and all sorts of things. What, what was the kind of germ of this book for you? It kind of became a lot larger than I expected it to when I first started working on it. I've always just loved the moon and had sort of a soft spot for it as a writer. And I write a lot about astronomy and astrophysics. The moon kind of ends up getting in the way of those things because it's so bright. Like it's really annoying if you're an astronomer trying to study deep sky objects or things like dark matter, the moon is in the way. You have to wait for it to not be up for you to do your observations. And so I felt like I wanted to say to astronomers, but the moon is really cool too. It's an interesting thing in its own right. And it has a lot of interesting history. We don't quite know a whole lot about how it formed, actually, which is a very active debate right now. And I thought that well, was one of the most surprising things. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was super interesting. But as I started writing the book and researching it, I sort of came to think that it's actually been responsible for everything that's ever happened here or been at least intimately involved in everything that's ever happened here. And that sort of became the argument of the book. It's it's much more than about the moon's own history. It's about really all of our history with it. Well, maybe let's start, though, with that that thing you mentioned, because it, it was fascinating because I'd sort of assumed we knew how the moon was formed and you know what, what was in it. I mean, you describe it in the opening pages, the pungent phrase he says, a crater pocked wasteland that smells of doused firecrackers, <laughs> which doesn't make it sound like a very promising subject for the... But there's much more to it than that, isn't there? I mean, it's 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 not just a hunk of a hunk of inert rock, or or certainly wasn't until quite recently. And this, you know, as you say, it's it's still a live debate about how it was made. What's our latest best guess? So we think it had to have formed in some really horrible collision between the early Earth and something probably the size of Mars. And we know those sizes because of things like how large the Moon is, how large the Earth is, how fast it's moving away from us where it is relative to Earth. It's not like lined up perfectly with Earth. It's sort of at an angle. And so all of these sort of physical characteristics tell us that it must have formed in some giant splat. But we don't really know exactly how that happened and why and, and even when. Like we have a general idea, but the picture is a little murkier than I think people might realize. Partly it's because of the moon rocks. The samples that came home during Apollo sort of told us interesting stories about the moon's history. And as scientific technology got more advanced, we got to look at them much more closely and in better detail in the last 20, 25 years or so. And it looks like the moon is basically identical to Earth chemically, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Like if, if something that was the size of Mars whacked into early Earth and the moon is the remnant of that thing, the moon should look different from Earth. Because inherently, things that form in different places around the sun are going to have a different composition. But the fact that the moon does not have a different composition from Earth means they form together somehow. 
And we don't really know how. We don't really have a good handle on how that could have happened. Something really, really horrible must have taken place to melt both planets entirely and have them both sort of recombine into the worlds we have now. Well, you have the, the, the hint of a kind of secret ancestor that none of us, will have, well, many of us won't have heard of, Thea. Yes. As the sort of secret sharer here. What, what was Thea? Thea is, well, the name comes from the mother of the moon, Selene, in Greek mythology. And um, it's thought to be the sort of donor of what became the moon. But I think it's probably a little bit more complicated than that because Thea is probably the donor of what became the Earth as well. And there's some really recent science looking at inside our planet. There are a few very strange things about Earth and the moon being one of them. But another one is the mantle of our planet. It's much warmer than other planets like Earth, like Mars and Venus, for instance. And there are these sort of blobs inside our planet where if you could visualize like slicing Earth in half and looking at it from the outside, like a cut open, you know, cantaloupe, um, you would see these blobs bracketing the core of Earth like a pair of headphones or earmuffs. And no one really knows what those things are. <laughs> These blobs are weird and they don't make a lot of sense. There's theories that say they could be subducted continental plates. That's sort of a feature of our plate tectonics on Earth. But recently, a couple of scientists have argued that they're the remains of Theia, that Earth, as it recoalesced after this collision, consumed the remains of this impactor, Theia, and it became part of Earth as well as part of the moon. Extraordinarily, Immanuel Kant makes a little appearance in this book, and he's best known, do you think, for some very, very abstract philosophy, but it turns out he was kind of way ahead of the game as a moon scientist as well. Yes. How is that? Yeah, he's one of my favorite characters that has these interesting connections to the moon. So many people, so many philosophers are like this, where, you know, I think in modern life, we tend to take the moon maybe for granted or don't think about it as as prominently as people did before us. And even a few hundred years ago, it was still this unbelievably interesting object of study. And yeah, Kant is known for a critique of pure reason and, you know, sort of philosophical jaunts. But he was also a planetary scientist in a certain way. And he had these interesting theories about how the moon came to be and how planets came to be. And he basically was right. Some of the, the details have been ironed out a little more clearly in the last few centuries since him. But the basic picture that he came up with is pretty much right that, you know, the sun formed and left this sort of curdled mass around itself that then coalesced into the planets. And that's what we think happened exactly how that happened and, and why, and the sizes of the things that were like sort of thwacking around at the time is all still debated, but yeah, he's the first person to come up with this sort of planetary nebula theory of planet formation which is what we think happened to Earth and all the other, other planets as well. Now, in the process of this formation, the moon isn't completely what it appears. So it's, it's, if I'm understanding you rightly, A, it's not silvery white, dead looking, if you're close up. And B, it's the far side really is different from the near side. It's not, not just a big uniform lump of rock, is it? Why is that? Well, the short answer is that we don't really know <laughs> why that is, which is fascinating to me. Like, we we don't really understand this thing. It's weird. It's, it has these very distinct hemispheres. And there are a few theories for why that happened. And 
some of them have to do with how the moon formed, how it coalesced around Earth when it was still molten, how elements within it sort of floated to different areas, and then maybe some huge impacts that happened later, not as titanic an impact as Thea, but other huge rocks that whacked into the moon over the last few billion years, maybe melted parts of it, caused these huge lava flows, which we see on the moon. Those, those are the maria, the dark spots that you see are actually just lava flows that have cooled. And so we don't we don't really have a good answer for why the far side looks so different from the near side. One idea is that it has to do with Earth's presence, that Earth has kind of warmed the moon over time and allowed materials inside it to flow in a different way on this side, closer to the warm Earth than they would have on the far side. Some people think it has to do with the tidal locking of the moon, which is a hard thing to understand, but the moon does actually rotate. It just rotates with the same periodicity as its rotation around the Earth. So it's like a dancer always facing the same spot as she spins. And it's thought that that might have some bearing on why the far side and the near side look so different. I mean, there is that, that sense that runs through your book of the idea that the Earth and the moon, you know, it's, it's not just a satellite. You know, it's, it's earthy. It's made of the same kind of stuff. And it's interdependent in all sorts of complex ways. It doesn't, I mean, it's, again, I'm surprised to know this, but maybe our more sophisticated listeners won't be. It doesn't actually rotate around the Earth at all. Yeah, it's a misnomer in a way. It The Earth and the Moon rotate each other. They rotate a common center of gravity, which is called a barycenter, which is this just physical term for an imaginary spot that they both share. And it's actually within the Earth, technically. So, in a, you know, in a more literal sense, the Moon does rotate around the Earth. It orbits Earth. But it's not quite as simple as I think I was led to believe before I started writing this book, it's much more a companion than a subordinate. And I think that's not how people have really thought about it. Now, in the list of things for which you give the moon credit, which is a very long list, you know, the first one is that without the moon, it seems highly unlikely that we would have life on Earth at all. Why is that? I think there are a few reasons for that. And one is the sort of strange changes that would happen to our planet if we didn't have the moon. We can look at Mars for an example of what this would be like. The moon stabilizes the rotation of our axis. So, you know, we know the Earth is tilted on its axis, which is why we have seasons. And it stays pretty much the same over time. It's about 23 and a half degrees right now. But a planet like Mars, which has no moon, goes between like zero and 40 degrees on its axis. So it's like knocking itself sideways every few million years. And imagine that happening on Earth, like you'd have the poles facing where the equator is now, and they would melt and that would cause huge shifts in our climate and the level of the oceans and the warmth of the oceans. Sea ice would have be gone, you know. And so we're lucky the moon doesn't let that happen. <laughs> it keeps us kind of stable. Like you got a gyroscope. Yeah, exactly. It, and we do have a wobble in our axis, which all rotating bodies have, like a spinning top that starts to sort of wobble. But the moon keeps that a little bit more stable over time. And over millennia, we're lucky that's the case. And I think beyond that, we, we don't really know exactly how or when or where life originated on this planet, but we think it was probably in the oceans. And it might have been in some tidal interface where shallow water met the land, but it might have also been in the deep ocean in these hydrothermal vent 
gashes where the Earth's mantle sort of leaks into its crust. Either way, the moon would have dredged those things up and mixed them and swirled them around like a ladle stirring a pot of soup. Nutrients in the ocean would have mixed and risen and fallen, where if we didn't have this tidal pull the moon exerts on our oceans, all that stuff would have just sunk and just stayed there. And it would have been pretty boring. And so I think in a very real sense, the moon is very intimately involved in how life originated here and how it evolved. I was going to say, I love that you have the courage among popular science writers of saying, you know, the first very boring billion years of life or whatever you know, <laughs> you're prepared to put your, make a judgment about what very, very early life on Earth was like. Yeah. Um, but life remains, as you describe in, in an early chapter, extraordinarily responsive in all sorts of ways, biologically, to the cycles of the moon. Plants and animals, they're, you know, they're breeding, they're hunting, they're all sorts of their behaviours seem to correspond very strongly to lunar cycles. Do you have a sense of how that works? Is What are they generally responding to? Is it tidal forces, the change in gravity, or is it the light of the moon? What's, what's going on there in your understanding? I think it's probably all of the above. And light is the most obvious sort of cue. The moon is really bright at night. You know, right, we take for granted right now how much of an influence it could have at nighttime because... We have artificial lights, we have lamps, we have cities, you know, street lamps. And we got used to that pretty quickly. But really, it's only been maybe 200 years being generous with the time frame that we have invented, you know, gas lamps in London, and then Edison and invented the light bulb. That is a blink of an eye in human evolution, let alone all of life on Earth. Until then, all there was was the moon at night. And so it's an incredibly powerful luminary and just a time cue. And it's, it's, it's changing every night allows us and other animals to sort of fix time and to understand when to do things. And sometimes that's something we're conscious of. Like humans, we can tell time based on the moon. And for other animals, it's subconscious. It's just an, an activation cycle that happens that sets their biological timing. And I think probably the gravity of the moon also has a role to play. And we've seen this in experiments on things like plants that seem to respond to the gravitational force of the moon more than just its light. And we don't really understand it. It's, it's far enough away that it has, a, it has a definite pull on Earth and everything on it. But the sort of change in gravity as it rotates around Earth is pretty much imperceptible but it turns out to be perceptible somehow by the very cells in our bodies and the very cells of the walls of plants. There's some detection happening here. Is there a sense that the human menstrual cycle really does follow the moon? It's not just an accident. I mean, this is one of those things. It's so hard to prove in science. It's so hard to draw like a definite conclusion about this. Epidemiology is so tricky. And this gets into things like evolutionary psychology, which can be a minefield. But I think it's it's safe to say that across cultures on earth, you know, medical studies show that the average woman's the average, you know, female menstruating person's cycle is roughly 28 to 30 days. And the lunar cycle is about 29 days. So there's a very strong correlation in just numerical averages among menstruating humans. And I think that's probably not a coincidence, you know, like, I don't think I would say that it's definite 
because it would be really hard to prove that because of other things like hormones and the water supply and exposures to plastics and other kinds of environmental factors and light at night. Like I mentioned, all these things play a huge role in regulating our hormonal cycles. So it's pretty hard to separate the moon from those things, but it's about the same. So, I mean, you know, I think it's at least worth considering. It's at least worth having a conversation about what that would have been like for our ancestors and for other hominin species, for other mammals, you know, it certainly plays some kind of role. But the suggestion, which was was fascinating to me in the book, is that the, the argument for why, if if so, that's taking place, is that you you want to maximize your chance of conception by syncing with the time when when the fellas aren't out hunting. Is that am I getting that right? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, you know, either the women were hunting and they were away, or the men were hunting and they were away. And when the moon is full, you were allowed to cover much more ground at night. It's really bright and open country at night. Even now, you know, in, in, in our cities, we sort of don't notice it maybe as much. But if you're in a rural area and the full moon is out, it's really, really bright. You can see for miles. And so, you know, thinking about ancestral humans chasing prey some in some you know savanna or open country even in, in Europe they would have used it to great effect to cover more ground to be able to hunt and so if imagining that you know the hunters or the women or the men who are hunting were away during those cycles and then when the moon is near its new moon phase so it's either a small crescent or not visible at all at night until very early in the morning then they're back at home. <laughs> it's logical to to draw that conclusion. And again, like I'm not going to sit here and say that's what happened, but I don't think it's far from the truth. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility for that to have been a major evolutionary cue. Well, moving from nature to culture, you make the case, you make a very articulate and persuasive case that the moon is sort of at the root of the things that make civilization civilized or make culture acculturated. How how did that start to come about? And if we, you know, you start talking about these extraordinary artifacts you've unearthed, some of them less well known than others, such as Warren Field and the Nebra Sky Disc. What's your sense of how we used the moon to start with? I sort of developed this notion about its role in our whole society based on time. And that's sort of the first way we use the moon. And I mean, we still use it that way. We st even Western culture, we have the Gregorian calendar now, which is the civil calendar, but that we have 12 months because there are 12 full moons in a year. And the moon is the, the root of all of our timekeeping systems on earth, the ones that are still used today in Western culture and in cultures like China and the Islamic calendar, the Jewish calendar, all of these are lunar calendars. So that was kind of how I decided to look at the way we orient ourselves in time. And it turned out there are so many artifacts and landscape monuments and relationships that humans built with the moon to be able to do this, to be able to mark time and orient ourselves in it and plan for the future, which as far as we know, we're the only species to do that consciously. And of course, there are animals that know how to like squirrel away resources for winter and plan biologically speaking. But humans can sit there and say, six months from now, six moons from now, I will take a trip, you know, or whatever you may be doing. And the moon is the way we did this for all of time. And as I started looking at some of these artifacts, I started realizing that once people figured this out, 
how to how to connect the lunar cycle with the solar year especially is tricky and people across cultures learned ways to do this but because it's tricky you had to have some tools or instruments or methods to do it and the people who developed those tools or controlled those tools had a lot of power over their societies and i think that's one of the things that enabled civilizations to crop up um, in the bronze age and over time, the moon being this marker of time and being this sort of helpful guide at night morphed into people imagining it with intentionality. You're like, thanks, moon, basically. And this, this also, also when, I mean, when you say that the, the secret to this was trying to find a way of reconciling the lunar cycle to the sun cycle with this idea of, I guess we now think of, we use it as the extra day in a leap year or whatever, but yes. these, is it intercalary is the word you use? Yes. These kind of interpolations are like, we'll stick an extra few days in here or we'll stick a month in here. Right. Yeah. And there are a few methods. I mean, the 12 days of Christmas, which we've just ended here, you know, in Western Europe and the United States is a holdover from that same tradition because there are about 12 moons in an average solar year. So from the time it takes the sun to have one solstice, you know, imagine the winter solstice, which we just had here in the Northern Hemisphere, back to the same spot is 12 moons, about. But there are 354 days in 12 lunar cycles and 365 days in a solar year. So that's a big difference. Even just a couple of years, you're off by, you know, a few weeks. So if you use the moon to set your calendar to plan for harvesting or sowing crops or celebrations or migrations you're going to be out of sync with the sun pretty quickly. And people figured this out a long time ago across all of earth and invented different ways to marry those two calendars. And some of the things they used include artifacts like the Nebra sky disc, which is thought to be a time setting device. It has a crescent moon and a disc that might be a full moon or the sun and the Pleiades, the seven sisters constellation also called Subaru in Asia. And it's, orientation on this disc suggests that when the moon is in the sky with the Pleiades at this time of year, it is time to add a month to your calendar or do something to your calendar to make it come into alignment again with the solar year. So yeah, the way we do that now is just a leap day. Every four years, we add an extra day in February and now we are lined up with the sun. But a long time ago, before written language, certainly it was hard to figure out how to do this, and people had to be very creative. Something that intrigues me, I mean, because there's sort of faint theme going through the book is, if you like, moon-sun rivalries. Um, that, that I mean, you describe an early, you know, a great emperor of the of the Babylonian Empire who he he kind of threw in with the moon god and caused him all sorts of trouble. You describe of looking at these archaeological sites, these stone circles and wood circles and henges and things like that, that you say that older sites tend to be oriented to the sun and newer ones to the moon. What is your reading of that? Is it that a more sophisticated sort of set of calculations came in with later people, or was this just a shift in fashion, as it were? I think it's probably, yeah, people became more aware of of time and the, the passage of time and the use of time, the importance of using time to create their civilizations. And the moon is a much more useful way to do that than the sun in certain ways. I mean, the sun changes every day. It's one day. But if you want to count 
three weeks into the future, which week we had to invent that. We had to invent this construct of groups of days. And so now we have weeks and months and years, but the moon really is the way to, to do it. And I mean, imagine people before written language trying to figure out when to meet somewhere or when to make a, a payment or some kind of transaction. This is before money even. How, would, how are you going to do that? You can say, well, the next time the moon is a crescent, I will meet you at this spot. Or it's easier to do that than it is to say, well, in 10 suns, you know, you can lose track of that pretty quickly without some formal method of counting. And so the moon is just easier. The moon is, is more obvious as a source of time. And yeah, I think that's how people begin to make those connections. And the sun is the sun is the giver of life. The sun is the reason we're all here. So the sun is an obvious thing to be tracking. And especially when you're trying to keep count the seasons and when to plant your crops or when to harvest or when to hunt. But over longer timescales and the timescales that we live our lives, the moon is some ways more helpful. So I think as people got more sophisticated, they drew those connections. At what point did our relationships with the sun and moon tip over from, if you like, the sort of ritual or mythological understanding of it into what we'd now recognize as a scientific one? I think it's sort of still both <laughs> in some ways. I kind of view Kepler and the the other contemporaries of his in the scientific revolution as one of the the keystone moments in this relationship where the moon becomes maybe less mystical, but more scientific, but they're both still there. But I don't think the moon became really a scientific object until the scientific revolution, I would argue, in part because we finally understood it. We finally understood its place in the universe and ours. Kepler and Galileo were some of the first people to really promote Copernicanism and the idea that the earth revolves around the sun and not vice versa. Because I love that you you have Ptolemy, you know, kind of, as you put it, goaltending the earth-centric <laughs> tradition. He's kind of frantically trying to... Yeah, he's trying to make these ridiculous things line up and they just don't at all. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and Copernicus is annoyed by this, you know, as I was. <laughs> you say the Islamic scholars have his number quite early on, don't they? Yes, that's true. And I do think that there's a lot of influence that Copernicus drew from some of these Islamic scholars in the Persian school who are contemporaries of Copernicus. And he gets a lot of credit, but I think he stood on the shoulders of giants as well. But yeah, I think the the moon, I believe, is one of the problems that we had for 1500 years and believing in geocentrism because the moon so obviously orbits Earth. It goes around Earth. I mean, just watch it for a week and you can feel it. You can see it change its shape. You can see how the sun hits it differently. It rises and sets. So it's kind of logical to think that the sun does too. Like, why would you not think that? <laughs> if, you, if you can tell the moon orbits Earth and it's obvious to you that it does, of course you're going to assume that everything else does too. And so I, I wonder if we didn't have a moon, if we would never have had this sort of problem and it would have taken less time than it did for us to accept the reality. Then if I'm right in understanding you, it was precisely the moon that was the biggest problem with Ptolemy making his maths work. Yes. Yeah, because, you know, there's these notions of epicycles and different is this sort of imaginary space that Ptolemy invents to explain orbits. And in antiquity and up until Kepler, orbits were considered to be circular 
things rotate around something in a perfect circle, in part because perfect circles are a notion the Greeks had of perfection, but also because it sort of is a perfect arrangement geometrically. A circle is this perfect thing. And so people imagine that's how things went around one another. And to make that work, according to observations, Ptolemy has to do these really sort of crazy stretches of imagination. And the moon is the primary problem because if his math is right and the epicycles are taking place, the moon would get like 30 times closer to earth than it actually does. So it would be this like terrifyingly large thing drawing so close every month and then receding to its distance. And it doesn't do that, (laughs) thankfully. (laughs) And, you know, it was like fuzzy math essentially. And people kind of hand waved it for 1500 years. And until some Islamic scholars were like, this doesn't make any sense. This is silly. Um, And then yeah, Copernicus inspired by their observations and his own sense of imperfection. Like he set out to fix Ptolemy's math because he viewed any problem with the arrangement as a defiance against God. He was a very devout man and he viewed the universe as a perfect creation of a perfect creator. And so if it wasn't perfect, he wasn't happy. He, he set out to fix Ptolemy's math because it offended God. <laughs> and it turned out that he found out the truth, which offended the church greatly. Once we'd figured out how the moon went round the earth properly, mathematically, we were able to go there. And you described that first trip to the moon and the sort of meanings attached to it. Do you think that was a kind of religious thing? I mean, that seems to be one of the arguments you asked, that what what was happening was was more than just a scientific expedition. Yeah, I, I very firmly believe that the Apollo missions were as much a religious quest as a mission of science or geopolitics. And I think that's in part just because of the language of America in the 60s is still a very Protestant nation, maybe less so now as a religious nation, but certainly in the 60s, the United States was a very strongly Christian country. And Apollo exemplified some of these ideals of exploration and of sort of swaggering into the future. And the astronauts were these all these like educated, wealthy Christian white men (laughs) you know, who represent this zeal of Protestant America in the post-war era. And I don't think that they set out to be religious in terms of what they did, but it is a almost a spiritual hero's journey. The idea of humans leaving earth to go and walk around somewhere else. If you step and think about it for a minute, it's kind of bizarre why did we do this it's so weird it's so strange and kind of i don't want to say pointless but it's like let's do it because we can you know there's something almost wacky about it well it's interesting that ralph abernathy you say martin luther king's kind of right hand man which i had entirely forgotten had been protesting yes outside the launch sites yeah. Saying, you know, couldn't we have civil rights here rather than spend all this money on going to the moon? Yeah. And yet he seemed to be kind of bought off with some free tickets a little bit. Is that <laughs> Yeah, basically, yes. But, you know, I mean, to his credit, too, everybody I think that took part in this was kind of blown away by what happened. And even if you 
you do want to point out that we've got a lot of problems on this planet. We're causing more new ones every day. And we should probably spend more time thinking about that before we leave here. And I think that's one thing he was pointing out. But he didn't ask them not to go. They were all there. They were part of it too. And he even says how excited he was and how proud he was too, as an American, to be part of this. If you just sort of slow down to think about how monumental a thing this was to conceive and then actually pull off, it still kind of blows my mind. You know, it's been 50 years, so we take it for granted and we kind of joke about and, you know, some 15% of people now think that the moon landings were a hoax. But if you just kind of try to place yourself back at that time, how bizarre and earth shattering it was to do this, it sort of never ceases to amaze me. And... The status of the moon you know, kind of belongs to all of us, and we've got these, these sort of treaties that say nobody can own the moon. But like all, all treaties, they seem to have a loophole, don't they? Yeah, it's it's an interesting time for our use of the moon. And I'm I'm just a little bit concerned with this sort of headlong rush that people are are making up there in the US especially, but also in China and India. Japan is launching another satellite to the moon here in the next couple of weeks. Now you have private companies getting involved and trying to get up there to make money and create an entire economy on the moon. And the fact is that there's no one in charge. There's no international body that's regulating any of this. There are some treaties like the Outer Space Treaty that talk about how nobody can go up there and put their flag and say, I own it. But that dates to the Cold War. It's pretty out of date at this point. Not every country is a signatory to it. And there is no general consensus about who can use the moon, where they can use it, what they can do to it or with it. And I think that's troubling for a few reasons. And, and one being that there's a lot happening up there. So much money is invested already in getting people up there, getting robots up there. And one thing we should keep in mind, we talk on Earth a lot about being good ancestors and leaving this place at least as good as we found it and hopefully better for the people coming after us. But earth is going to be fine. For the most part, this planet will be fine. No matter what we do to it, we might not be. And our future generations of humans may not be other life forms here may not be, but the planet is going to change. It's going to erase any sign of us in the distant future. The moon is not, the moon has no water cycle. It has no geologic cycle. It has no wind it has no erosion. Anything we do to it will be done forever. And I think that's a big responsibility. And we need to just be mindful of that before we go up there and start extracting all of its metals <laughs> or water or something else. Everything we do to the moon is going to be done to it for all of time. And I think we should be mindful of that. Elon Musk, take note. Rebecca Boyle, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks for having me. 